to add my voice to the chorus of welcomes, especially if you're new here, welcome. Uh, my name is Steve, if you don't know me, I'm on the preaching team here at Hall Center Church and on the elder team. I also want to say happy Mother's Day to those of you moms out there. We have a new mom, Emily had her baby this week, that was so celebrate. so Freeman's added another one, um, imagine that, and Dorothy is still with us. <laughs> uh, and with all that, I also want to say that as celebratory as this day can be for a lot of folks, this is a really, really rough day. And we need to acknowledge that. And I want to make sure for those of you that this is a rough day, this is as much a place for you, maybe even more so. And so if you are someone who knows someone that struggles with today, maybe just a quick word, hey, I'm thinking of you today. Uh, just a quick word of love. Okay, we are in the book of Acts. Oh boy, and David's so jealous, I get to preach this one. Oh well. Witnesses to the end, and last week, if you recall, sermon title was No Limits. And we saw that God's love runs to the most rejected and the most far off. We saw how Philip was sent by the Spirit to go minister to someone who had questions, who was from the most far off region that the Israelites even knew about at the time. This week, a sermon title is The Right Man for the Job, and we're going to look at a quick passage in Acts 8, but we're going to spend most of our time in Acts chapter 9. And so if you would um, get your Bibles, that'd be great. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 mostly. The passages will be up on the screen, uh, but certainly turn in your Bibles if you can. If you need a Bible, there are a few along the outside edges. If you don't own one, it's yours to keep. And so I want to I wanna dive, there is so much to talk about today when you see what we're going to cover and when, you, when we get into it, I want, we're going to talk about Saul. Saul of Tarsus was a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was born in the city of Tarsus, which is currently in modern-day Turkey. He was raised in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Tarsus was a free city in the Roman province of Cilicia, and Saul's parents had become citizens of Rome. Some of you are familiar with this by hearing Paul describe himself later in his epistles. Thus, as a result, by birth, Saul also had Roman citizenship. He was trained in the Torah, the biblical studies and the law, under the most respected rabbi of his day, a guy named Gamaliel. And if you remember back to Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel was the guy that stood up and go, went, listen, if these guys are for something that's fake, it'll disappear. Let them go. And they did. But Paul trained under that guy. And Saul very much considered himself to be zealous for God, and he was a Pharisee. He was also a tent maker by trade. He'd grown up learning to make tents. But in today's passage, we'll see that he'd become the Sanhedrins, the rulers of the Jews. Uh, they're prosecuting attorney. And so what we're going to look at today is Saul's experience on the road to Damascus and a little bit of time in Damascus. 
It is the most famous conversion in church history, probably by far. Luke is so, I'll say, impressed with the importance of Saul's conversion that he includes it three times in Acts, once in his own narrative that we're going to see today, and twice in Paul's speeches later in Acts. You're going to hear it again. Okay, so I also want to get something out of the way as we get started today. Uh, you'll hear it preached sometime and said sometime that um, Saul, the persecutor, became Paul the apostle. That's really not biblical, okay? Uh, it's as simple as this. Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is his Greek name. When Saul begins ministering to Gentiles around about Acts 13, that's where you will start to see him referred to as Paul. And so when you hear Saul or Paul, it's the same person, different languages, you'll hear them both today interchanged. Um, so just make a note of that. If you were someone that thought that Saul was the bad name and Paul was the good name, that's not how it is. You can, there's many examples in Scripture um, where folks have their Hebrew and their Greek name, and that's the case with Saul and Paul. Today's point, pretty straightforward. We're going to jump into it and dive into a little more, more toward the end. Today's point is the judge came down and took the judgment on himself for the worst offenders. Heard the term substitutionary atonement. That's some fancy theological term for exactly this. That the one who was responsible for judgment, was responsible for laying out judgment, was responsible for the law that condemned, stood and took, came out of the judge's seat and took the judgment on himself. And so often we like to think, well, he did that for people that are pretty cool, right? at least good people that behave themselves mostly, right? No, he did it for the worst, for the worst offenders. And so we're going to look more into this, but I want you to own this. I want you to consider it. I want you to understand the truth of the gospel is that the judge took the judgment on himself. And so we've seen, and I want to make sure as you, as you, as you, as you experience us studying Acts chapter 8 and, cha and Acts chapter 9, we saw that God's love runs to the most rejected. We saw it, the Samaritans. There could not be a more anathema group of people. God's love ran to them. And then it also ran to those far off. And we see the example of the Ethiopian who then um, started the church down in his area. And today we're going to see that God's love runs to the most awful. We have the rejected, we have the far off, and today we have the most awful. That's what Scripture is telling us. As Luke is recording his account, he wants to make sure you understand that as the gospel left Jerusalem and went to the world, it did not go to the people that made sure they got up early enough to make it to church every Sunday. I want to make sure it didn't go to the people that had the money. It went to the rejected, the far off, and the worst. And let's make sure as we read the book of Acts, we understand that's what's being communicated. 
The gospel is not for the folks that are right in line and have it all put together. So often we are guilty of acting like the gospel is for folks that at least behave as good as us. So let's get started with a quick review. So we dive into the passage today. We're going to take a look at Acts 8, 1 through 3, the beginning of Acts. It picks up right after Stephen's murder, if you recall that. But we want to do it, we want to use this passage again as an introduction to Saul. Verse 1, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Right? And so we've we've studied, we've, we've, we've seen what happened when Jesus ascended. He gave the uh, disciples their charge to go, and the Holy Spirit came down. Peter preached. 3,000 came. 5,000 came. The church in Jerusalem was exploding. It was exploding so much they had to figure out how to organize and get people to help, and everyone was sharing everything. And the church in Jerusalem was just an amazing experience of the Holy Spirit working amongst his people, and there were signs and wonders and just a, a wonderful, amazing time. And then at Stephen's execution... It says, and on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem arose. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The only folks left and stayed were the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so that's chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8. And then Luke pauses there and he goes, okay, let me tell you what Philip's up to. Let me explain what Philip's doing. Philip, the evangelist, he's probably part of the persecution, the spread. He was a guy who was a deacon who was in charge of taking care of the Hellenistic widows. And he was one of seven that were picked. He goes down and he just starts preaching to the Samaritans. And man, that place blows up as well. And if you recall, there was a guy named Simon and the whole thing. And Peter and John came down and authenticated the message. And then we have the Ethiopian that we saw last week. And I want to make sure we understand that God, you have to see this, God used Saul's attack for the spread of the gospel. There's very much a boomerang here when it comes to what God is doing. We look at the persecution of the church, and we're like, oh, that must have been so terrible. And it was It absolutely was, but in God's providence, his total purposive control in all things, he used it for the spread of the gospel. Seemingly awful things God can use for good. Mm. Okay, let's, let's get started with today's passage, and we'll start with a continued attack. And so we got the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Acts 9, 1 and 2 show that Paul, Saul, has not let up. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. But but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that was the name of the believers at the time. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
And so I want to make sure when we read the words and we, we get the sense of what Luke is sharing, Luke says that Saul wasn't just threatening Christians. It says he was breathing threats. He was breathing threats. It's as though persecution was the air that he was breathing. This wasn't a side gig in Paul's life. It went right to the core of who he was. And let's understand why. Because Christianity, with its message of salvation by faith alone, apart from any works, would take everything Paul had done in his life and turn it into rubbish. That's what it would do. And so Paul wanted to make sure that this had never saw the light of day. And so he went to the leaders and said, listen, give me some papers. I'm going to go down to Damascus. It looks like people are spreading out there, and let me bring them back. And you can hear Paul talk about this in Philippians 3. But it would be the end of everything he'd accomplished or that he could boast about if the gospel was true. If the gospel was true, Paul had nothing, nothing. And so Paul was breathing threats and murder against Christians. And so he's going to take his persecution 150 miles north to Damascus and plan on bringing Christians back to be punished. And so we have to hear this. We have to see this. This is the kind of person that no one expects to be converted. His opposition is too deep. He's thought about it too much. He's too learned. So much of his life would be threatened if Christianity were true. And he's taken such a public stand, right? He's there as a note at Stephen's execution. He's there approving of it. He's taken such a public stand, it would be utterly humiliating to change his mind at this point and support the one thing that he had fought against so hard. And so what God wants us to see in this is that the most unlikely people can be converted and are converted. God's mercy and his power are not limited to people who've been set up for Christianity by a good family or a church association or a good moral track record. The judge came down and took the judgment on himself, even for the worst offenders. So, in the next few verses, we have an introduction in verses 3 through 5. Saul had almost completed his journey of about 150 miles, and he gets to meet Jesus. I know we joke about that a lot, but he actually does. And it comes right out of the blue, verse 3. Now, as, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, FYI, that's a pretty big light that drops you to your face. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was almost to Damascus. And he got knocked to the ground. Uh, Saul, Saul, in Hebrew, this repeating of the name was a way to show intensity. Kind of like how Abby says, Shane, Shane, just like that. Okay, it's the same thing. It's here. 
And a voice says, why, why are you persecuting me? That's in verse 5. Why are you persecuting me? Verse 5. And, and he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice, he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so that word Lord, it's in there. What does Paul mean by it? There's two options of what Paul could mean. Uh, number one, it could just be sir, a title of respect. Something just knocked him to his face. He says it out of that. You can see that used in the Gospel of John 4. It also could mean Yahweh, translated by Lord in the Old Testament. And so if the focus of this passage is surprise, Saul going, oh, then number one, sir, a title of respect probably applies. But if the light from heaven is an action of God, then number two might be the case. If it is number two, suddenly Paul's got a real challenge. And so you don't want to try to get, in, you try to get into Saul's head, what on earth just happened? A light? Why are you persecuting me? And he's on his face. And so I want to make sure we spend just a moment here. How is Paul persecuting Jesus? Like, can Jesus even be persecuted? Well, yeah, I think we've seen that. Um, two passages from Scripture help us. The first is from Matthew, where Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats, and he says this in Matthew 25, 40. I don't have it up here, but, and you'll, you'll, you'll recognize it if you've been around the Bible a bit. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And Paul himself in Ephesians 5.30 says, we are members of his body. So when Jesus says, you are persecuting me, he means it. And so verse 5 shows the community and the connectedness between Jesus and his church. Saul was persecuting the church, and Jesus took it personally. In any case, what follows is a bit of a, I call a timeout, <laughs> verses 6 through 9. Jesus tells Saul what to do next. Verse 6, Jesus says to Saul, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Verse 7 says, The guys that were with him, the men who were traveling with him, stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. These men, the ones standing speechless, they a few options for who they are. They could be the temple police accompanying Saul. could be other Jewish men. could also be other theological students from Jerusalem. We aren't told. But they could hear the voice, but they couldn't see anything. Saul saw the light, heard the voice, and spoke with Jesus but things were different. In verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. 
And this is a picture Luke is painting for you. So they led him by the hand into Damascus and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The guy who was going to Damascus to wreak havoc on the Damascus church entered Damascus led by the hand. Blind, weak, powerless. We might call this the midnight of his soul. He had blindness physically as well as spiritually. But though he was blind, he had seen Jesus. His life was utterly wrong. He was a criminal before God. Even references in Romans 7, nothing good lives in me. As Christ's enemy, he'd drawn blood. And now darkness was everywhere. Can you imagine what is going on in his head and his heart? You need to remember he'd spent his entire life being trained and educated as it relates to the importance of the law, the temple, and he's now had an introduction that is going to blow everything up. Everything. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, which I would commend to any of you, says, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. The inner workings of God's grace, they touch our lives in ways sometimes we aren't aware of. A word spoken here or there, pressures in our lives, lack of pressures, joys, sorrows, God orchestrates them all. And what does he do? He brings us to the end of ourselves. He brings us to the end of ourselves, and that's exactly what he did with Saul. And for three days, Saul didn't eat or drink, and he was blind. He was at the end of himself. It is important to note here what part has Saul played so far? Existing. Murdering. That's all he's done so far. So let's keep reading. Next, we have a calling, verses 10 through 12. Jesus now goes and gets someone to care for Paul and minister to him. And this is kind of insane. And I love this account. I believe that this man we're going to meet here in a minute, Ananias, is one of the absolute unsung heroes of Scripture. Verse 10, let's, let's, let's introduce ourselves to him. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, 
Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Ananias, the name itself means Yahweh is gracious. It would appear he's a believing Jew of good reputation. He's not a refugee that had escaped from Jerusalem. And he's ready. He says, here I am, Lord. In verse 11, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. <laughs> and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I can imagine Ananias listening to the Lord and going, okay, uh, straight street, okay, got it. Um, a man from Tarsus, okay, cool. Fine. Saul, uh, Saul. The guy that's been tearing up the church? Uh, are you sure? Incidentally, Straight Street is still the main east-west thoroughfare in Damascus. I Google mapped it, and it's still there. It's pretty cool. However, God's calling is met with reluctance in verses 13 through 16. As one would imagine... Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, <laughs> how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Are you serious? essentially the translation I would put. Are you serious? In church speak, we call this follow-up work. He was very reluctant to do any follow-up work. And you can all understand his hesitation. To go to Saul would be like turning yourself into the police. That's what it would be like. It would be suicide. And what an answer God gives to Ananias. Verse 15. <laughs> but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is the second time Jesus has said, go. And I want to make sure you hear God's answer here loud and clear. Go. Why? Because I chose him. Chose him to do what? To carry my name. To Gentiles. To royalty. And to Israel. And God follows it up with verse 16. And this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And if you have your Bibles open and you're reading and you're looking and you're seeing verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
what's cool is verse 17. We're not going to go there yet. We're not going to switch to it. But verse 17, Ananias goes, all right, let's go. <laughs> as soon as God says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name, Ananias says, all right, I'm, I'm in. I don't think that's entirely the point we're supposed to take from that, but that's how I read it. Like, that's all the convincing I need. This guy's going to suffer. Let's go. But what we need to see here, and when we read this, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that this is not God. And you guys, it's going to be upside down for us until we actually think of it. It sounds like God is going to punch Paul in the face. It is not what's happening. What God is doing is saving the worst of all sinners and bringing him to a life serving God that will end in heaven. That's what's happening. And so when we see, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, what is going on there? And so we need Jesus to help us with this. Suffering is not, especially in the New Testament, the exception for believers. It's indeed the rule, the norm for Christians in a fallen world. Paul was going to go from the ultimate persecutor of Christ to the one most persecuted for Christ. In Matthew 5, as part of the Beatitudes, verse 10, Matthew 5, 10, I don't have it up here, but you're going to recognize it, most of you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11 of Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As part of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, persecution? Yes. What? And so I want to take us back to about Christmas time. We, we looked at the Beatitudes a bit, and that term blessed, blessed, that word means to experience God in a unique and beautiful way. And so when God says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, and Jesus says, when you suffer, you experience God in a unique and beautiful way. It changes what you read here. He is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he must suffer, and he will be blessed by it. Do you think Paul, later in his ministry, would say he'd been blessed by it? Oh, yeah. Okay? And so when we read this, we need to make sure we have the context and understand in any case, we next get to experience Brother Saul. <laughs> and then we're going to look at verses 17 through 19. It's going to kind of close out this account. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And who will know what wonders whether the knees were knocking? Who knows what was going on? But Ananias was obedient. He went and did it. And laying his hands on him, he said... 
This is beautiful. Brother Saul. Yikes. Yeah, I, wow. This has got to be divine. This is miraculous. He says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so these may well have been the first words Saul heard from Christian lips after his conversion. And they were words of welcome as a brother. Jesus told Ananias that Paul was praying for these three days. To be called brother must have been music to his ears. And seriously, the ultimate enemy of the church was going to be received as a member of the family? Yes. Ananias explained how the same Jesus who had appeared to him on the road had sent him so he could get his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. You are hearing Luke the doctor here talking. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And we're going to pick up next week as he actually begins to interact with the church in Damascus and starts to tell everyone about Jesus. And so I have a question for us that Paul himself answers. And he answers with a few different questions. And so I want to put the, the question up here along with four things. Why convert a murderer? Why would you bother to convert a murderer? Murderers deserve death. The law is pretty clear about that. Why not just kill them, be done with it, and find another way? Why convert a murderer? First, first to show that salvation is not based on goodness. Anybody here just get done reading this account and say, wow, God's salvation is based on how good a person you are? Why was Paul the right man for the job? Because none of us can make the case that he was saved based on good works. His works that he had to bring to the table was jailing and murdering followers of Jesus. That's what he brought to the table. That didn't save him. He was not saved by good works. He was saved for good works. And it's true of every one of us. None of us is saved by our good works. We're saved for them. And that difference makes all the difference. And so are you here today? You feel that you're not good enough? Let Paul tell you different in his letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.15. I've got it up here. Paul, in writing to Timothy, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He intros it like, listen, this is the real deal. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and when you stack all the sinners up, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. This is Paul's testimony. I am the worst. Elsewhere in his letter to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians 2.8, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is what? The gift of God. Why save a murderer? 
to show that salvation is not based on goodness. It is a gift. Never forget it is a gift. It is offered freely. Romans 5, 6 through 8, I don't have it up here. Some of you are familiar with it, but listen, when Paul says it this way. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And I love this analogy that Paul does. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, a goody two-shoes, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But verse 8 of Romans 5, but God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why convert a murderer? To show that salvation is not based on goodness. You cannot get there. Goodness will not get you there. Paul is the perfect example for us in that. Number two, why convert a murderer? To display the patience of Jesus. To display the patience of Jesus. You say, Steve, where do you get that? Well, I get that from the next verse in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, the first part of verse 16. But I received, this is Paul saying this, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the foremost what? The foremost sinner is what he just said, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect Patience. Perfect patience. Other translations use the word unlimited and inexhaustible for perfect. We'll go with perfect. I was not persecuting Christians like Paul was. I was around six years old, I believe, when I placed my faith in Jesus after a VBS. First Baptist in Portland isn't there anymore. But I would say without a shadow of a doubt or a hesitation that God has been just as patient with me as he was with Paul, as he is with every one of us. Because none of us deserve God's mercy. Mm. That's the whole point of mercy. We don't deserve it. God is so merciful and so patient with every one of us. And every one of us can look back at our lives and go, wow, wow. He stayed with me. We've all rebelled in this way or that, and he's been so patient. Perfect patience. The conversion of the murderer Saul was an exhibition of Jesus' perfect patience. Number three, why convert a murderer? To encourage those whose sin has made them hopeless. It remains... A source of hope to otherwise hopeless people. Paul seems to say across, what, a couple thousand years, don't despair. Christ had mercy even on me, the worst of all sinners. He can also have mercy on you. And so listen to what he says at the end of 1 Timothy 1.16. We'll read the whole verse again so you see it all tied together. He said, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
if that kind of person, the kind Paul had been, can receive God's grace, mercy, patience, and gift of everlasting life, every person in the whole world can say, there is hope for me after all. Every single person. And, and so if your choices, the trajectory of your life away from God has made you hopeless that God can love you, that he can make you whole, Paul has a word for you. His word is, he did it for me. And so God's conversion of Paul shows that salvation is not based on goodness. This shows us the patience of Jesus and to be an example to us. Finally, why convert a murderer? Number four, to show a powerless and persecuted church that God is the one that wins battles. Ooh, and so we get to think for a minute about the church in Damascus and the terror they, they might have felt as they heard that Saul was coming to carry them back to Jerusalem for trial and potentially execution. Imagine the church in Damascus, terrified of that, and then they find him at church with them singing Glorious Day. He's in the third row. Sydney comes up and says, Steve, nobody wants to get up in front of and sing because he's here. And I was like, I don't want to get up either. <laughs> right? But what would happen in here? Everyone carrying would sit right around him. You're like, what? People carry? Oh, what, what would it be like? This guy who's supposed to be killing, now he's sitting there and he's listening and he's participating. What is going on? Well, what goes on and what happened? God won the battle. God did it. Nobody, but nobody even remotely had a hand in it. Nobody. God did it. He converted Paul, converted Saul. And so they must have been reminded of Deuteronomy 3.22, you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Hmm. Why convert a murderer? Number one, to show that salvation is not based on your goodness. It's just not. Number two, to demonstrate the perfect patience of Jesus. Number three, to be an example to those whose sin has made them hopeless. And number four, to show the church that God is the one that wins battles. And so we read 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16 to show the first three points. Verse 17 that follows that just shows us that theology, what we've done, the truth about God, what we've looked at leads to doxology, the praise of God. Because 1 Timothy 1, 17, I don't have it up here, but Paul chases that point about I am the chief of all sinners and God has demonstrated his perfect patience in, to me and I'm an example for those he says this to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And so what do we celebrate? Back to our first point. The judge came down and took the judgment on himself for the worst offenders. And this is Paul's testimony. That Jesus came and he came to die he came not to die for those that believe they're good enough. He came to die for the worst. 
And so I would ask you, ask you if you feel like you're free from God's judgment. As we talked about last week, Jesus told us that if you'd like to get saved on your own effort, it's in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us if you'd like to get saved on your own effort, if you want it to be about you, then he's got a way you can do that. He says in verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If that's not the standard you can meet, then you need the judge to come down and take the judgment for you because perfection is the only thing that will get you there. You think you're too far off for God? You aren't. You just aren't. Paul is an example to you today if you feel like you are. The judge came down and took the judgment for you. And so if the singers and musicians want to come up, done such a great job picking music for today, the closing song we're going to sing, His mercy is more. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you know, we read your word and we look at it and we see the conversion of Saul. And all we see is you moving. All we see is you acting. What C.S. Lewis calls, calls you the hound of heaven, that you chased Saul down and you made him yours. So every one of us who's here today and does not trust in our own goodness to, to be made right with you, we praise you that the hound of heaven found us. I do pray if there are people in this room that believe that their own achievements are enough to make them right with a perfect and just and holy God, they would look at what's happened and what we've looked at today and realize that they need the judge to take the judgment from them. We praise you for sending Jesus Christ to do exactly that. We praise you for the reality, the joy that we have as a result of the love that you poured out on us. Thank you for taking the judgment on yourself that was due to us. In Jesus' name, amen.